Hi, good morning. Uh, my name is Matt. Um, I've been a member of Modern Road for coming up for five years uh, this summer. Um, I don't know if any of you have ever seen this film, The Notebook. Uh, it's a great film. I'd highly recommend it. Uh, but it's also a film that I wouldn't watch in public. Uh, because the first time I watched it, um, on my honeymoon, um, interesting choice, Charlotte, uh, it made me cry and cry and cry. And I don't normally cry during films. Um, it's just something that really got to me, um, I don't want to give too much away, but it's something that really got to me when you see how the storyline of the young couple with the kind of will-they-won't-they romance co uh, combines with the storyline of the, um, the older man visiting a nursing home. Um, and the uh, second time I saw it, I managed to hold it together a bit more, you'll be pleased to hear. Uh, but it was a really beautiful, really sad story. Uh, and the famous thinker, Aristotle, uh, said that there are four different types of tragic story. Um, the first one he called a complex tragedy, uh, basically built on a kind of series of reversals of fortune, sudden realisations, a bit like Romeo and Juliet, um, where Romeo kills himself because he thinks that Juliet is dead, but actually she's still alive, and then she kills herself afterwards. Um, the second type he identified was a pathetic tragedy, uh, where the, kind of the intensity of the main character's suffering um, is key, creating pathos or sympathy. Um, think of anything kind of with illness, um, The Fault in Our Stars, perhaps, or A Tess of the D'Urbervilles by Thomas Hardy. Um, the third one, moral tragedy. Um, that's where we see a character's downfall as a result of their actions. Um, think Shakespeare's Macbeth, flawed by his ambition to be king, or Hamlet uh, by his indecision. And the fourth one, spectacle tragedy, where just the pure horror of what's happening creates the sadness. Uh, anything to do with war or national tragedy would fit in here. Uh, the Hunger Games, possibly, or even Titanic. Uh, and the best writers, Aristotle said, combine elements of all four. Uh, and we've certainly seen our gospel writer, John, weave different strands of tragedy into his account so far of Jesus' suffering. The reversals of fortune as Pilate vacillates between fighting for Jesus' release but then signing his death papers. The surprise realisations as it increasingly dawns on Jesus' followers that he really is going to die. The pathos of Jesus bearing himself with utter integrity as he's falsely accused and wrongly condemned. And the moral tragedy, not for Jesus, but for Pilate, as he acts against his conscience in sending Jesus to the cross. And the pure, grim spectacle of Jesus' mock coronation at the start of chapter 19. Hail, King of the Jews, they said, as they slapped him in the face. If you're visiting us or joining us for the first time this Sunday, we're in the fifth week in a series in chapters 18 to 20 of John's Gospel. Seven words of the cross. Uh, and we've seen so far betrayal, as Jesus took himself and his friends to a garden at the beginning of chapter 18, where he was arrested by a detachment of soldiers who'd been led to him by his follower, Jesus. Uh, secondly, denial in chapter 18 again, as Jesus' closest friend, Peter, insisted three times that he was not a follower of Jesus. How foolish and naive his promises of his great service back in chapters 12 and 13 of John's Gospel turned out to be. Number three, cowardice, as Pilate tried Jesus and failed to find any basis for a charge against him, and yet 
at the end of chapter 18, bowed to the bloodthirsty crowds and sentenced Jesus to death anyway. And finally, number four, hatred. We saw last week from the beginning of chapter 19 as Pilate signed Jesus' death warrant and the jealous Jewish leaders finally got rid of this threat to their authority. And this morning, we reach the pinnacle of the tragedy, as Genevieve just read for us, from chapter 19, verses 16 to 42. Jesus' final moments and his death. And our fifth word, fulfilment. But what type of tragedy, as Aristotle would have defined it, do we witness this morning? Well, we could spend many hours studying these verses. There are so many themes we could pull out and angles we could explore. But my aim this morning is to see what John, the writer of the gospel, wanted us to see. To read these, inver- these verses as he intended his first readers to read them. As we do this, we'll see lots of the themes that we've touched on already returning to the foreground. Jesus' awareness, even control, of what was happening. Jesus' identity being revealed as God's son and king. The fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. Jesus' death as a Passover sacrifice. And the hypocrisy, vindictiveness, but ultimately powerlessness of his persecutors. But what's the strand that seems to be most firmly in John's mind as he narrates this scene? The one that weaves all the other strands together? Well, I would argue that it is triumph. A quiet strain of triumph is the current that runs under the surface of John 19, 16 to 42. Yes, you may think, with the resurrection coming in chapter 20, we know that it's going to be a story of triumph. Reading the epistles alongside the gospel, we know that Jesus had to die so that we could be saved. We know that ultimately it is a good story. But surely it's a bit simplistic to say that we can see triumph even in the narrative of Jesus' death itself. Well, let me try to convince you. Now, undoubtedly, there are elements of tragedy in this account. Pathetic tragedy as our sympathies go out to Jesus as we read the notice above his head, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, as he actually was, or as we watch the soldiers gamble for his clothes. The tragedy of spectacle as the soldiers thrust a spear into Jesus' side in verse 34 and his bodily fluids pour out. But I don't think John primarily wanted his readers to see the tragedy of Jesus' death as they read his account. If anything, I think he played it down. Compared to even Matthew, Mark and Luke, John seems to include less of the anguish, weakness and suffering of the cross. There's no mention in John of Simon of Cyrene being forced to carry the cross, presumably because of Jesus' exhaustion. There's no mention of the cruel mockers or of Jesus' refusal to drink the sedative of wine mixed with myrrh or of his desperate cry, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. If John wanted us to feel pathos, sympathy for Jesus, then why leave out so many of these details that, presuming John the Gospel writer was also John the disciple, he must have seen firsthand as he was at the cross himself. Similarly, much of the spectacle of the tragedy is absent in John. We don't hear of darkness falling or of the sun stopping shining. We don't learn of the earth shaking, or of the tombs breaking open, or of the temple curtain being torn in two. No. Instead, John wants us to see the quiet triumph 
of the cross. He wants us to see the sovereign plan of God the Father being worked out and the Son's obedience to it. Let's go now to the foot of the cross and we'll examine three key scenes in which we see not God's weakness as Jesus dies, but God's triumph. Our first point, scene one. God triumphed as Jesus' persecutors appeared to have won. Verses 16 to 24. God demonstrated his triumph as Pilate and the Jewish leaders argued over what the notice on Jesus' cross should say and as the soldiers gambled for his clothes. As we read last week, much of the second half of chapter 18 and the first half of chapter 19 was a battle between the Jewish chief priests and Pilate, the Roman governor, as to what should happen to this low-life Jesus. The chief priests wanted Jesus killed. Pilate thought he should go free. And with verse 16 at the start of our passage this morning, the chief priests must finally have celebrated mission accomplished. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. But the battle was not quite finished, for it was the custom that a criminal would have the crime of which they were convicted written on a tablet and hung around their neck as they made their way to the place of execution. On arrival, this packard would then be fastened to the cross as a deterrent to anyone else considering the similar deed. A bit like the um, graphic pictures you get on cigarette packets of the lung cancer you can afford to if you smoke these cigarettes, I suppose. And so Pilate, perhaps with a little smirk to himself, has written on the placard, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, John tells us in verse 19. Now this could have been a genuine admission of uh, Jesus' identity. Pilate spit sticking to the resolve that he made back in verse 12 and speaking up for Jesus and the truth of his claims. But it's probably more likely that it was an act of revenge against the chief priests. They'd humiliated him and they'd forced him to act against his will. Now was his chance to show them that he was boss and to make a mockery of them, their religion and their leadership by declaring this miserable lowlife to be their king. And when they, of course, complain, um, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews, in verse 21, Pilate responds, what I have written, I have written. Get stuffed. And so, in the three main languages of the day, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek, and in writing bold and big enough for any passerby to see without needing to get too close, presumably, and we know from verse 20 that plenty saw it, Pilate declares... Here is Jesus. Here is Jesus, the King. Jesus' true identity as King, hammered above his head by the hands of his enemies for all the world to see. It looked like the Jewish leaders and Pilate had won as Jesus hung on the cross. But it was God who triumphed as Jesus' true identity was declared for everyone to see. The um, petty battle for power between the chief priests and Pilate reminds me of a typical classroom scene. There's only one glue stick on red table and everyone wants to be the first to use it. Johnny and Jennifer grab it out of little Timmy's hands as he's about to stick his math sheet into his book. But then they fall into an argument over which of them gets to use it first. Little do they realise, the teacher has seen everything. And as soon as her explanation is finished, she walks over and plucks the glue stick from Jennifer's hand 
and gives it back to Tommy. Johnny and Jennifer thought that they had won, but it was Timmy who triumphed. The Jewish leaders and Pilate thought they had won as Jesus hung on the cross, but it was God who had triumphed. And what a reassurance this is for us as we daily live and work and are people who reject God and refuse to follow his rule. It may look for a while like they are succeeding when they repress the truth and promote sin, but God will triumph. Whether it's bosses who expect us to treat colleagues or clients in ways we're not comfortable with as Christians, the blurring of lines around honesty as results are presented, boards redefining visions, values and ethics in a way that no longer lines up with Jesus' teaching, or teachers and lecturers outrightly denying the truth of the Bible. It may look for a while like they are succeeding as they repress the truth and promote sin, but God will triumph. We do not need to fear. But this isn't the only place where we see God triumph as Jesus' persecutors appear to have won. From this scene of discord, we jump to one of relative harmony in verses 23 and 24. It was customary at a crucifixion for the clothes of the crucified person to become the property of the executors. So it probably was not an uncommon scene, therefore, to find what we find here, a bunch of soldiers gambling for a criminal's possessions. The four soldiers had probably already shared out between them, Jesus' outer robe, head covering, belt and sandals, just leaving the fifth item, the tunic, to be gambled for. Let's not tear it, they said to one another in verse 24. Let's decide by lot who will get it. But for John, this scene is not just an eyewitness detail of the humdrum dealings going on around a cross while its victim dies. It is nothing less than the fulfilment of one of the greatest psalms in the Old Testament. Verse 24. This happened, says John, that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. And as you can see from the footnote. Um, This is a quote, word from word, from Psalm 22, verse 18. Um, Psalm 22, I will leave it up to you whether you flick to it. Psalm 22 is a poem written by David in which the speaker describes his suffering at the hands of his enemies as if it were an execution. His persecutors mercilessly taunting and abusing him. And in verse 18 of Psalm 22, the speaker describes a potent symbol of his utter shame and humiliation. Having been stripped, his clothes are divided up by his persecutors. This, says John in verse 24, is what the soldiers did to underline his point. The soldiers no doubt thought that they were having a bit of fun and making a profit on the side. They had no idea that their actions were fulfilling the words of one of the greatest prophecies in the Old Testament. They were doing exactly what God had said they would do 1,000 years earlier, before crucifixion was even invented. God triumphed, as Jesus' persecutors appeared to have won. It's a bit like the boyfriend who spent months preparing his proposal. He orchestrated that he and his girlfriend would visit her family over the anniversary of their first date, He made sure that her brother and sister would be there the same weekend as them. 
He got her dad to suggest a trip to the cinema that night to see a film that he knew her best friend had seen last week and said was awful. He encouraged her mother and sister to reminisce about the beach they used to play on as children so that she'd suggest they go for a walk there that evening instead. And a few hours later, there she is, ambling across the sands with him as the sun is going down, just as he planned, and he gets down on one knee. The soldiers thought they were having a bit of fun and making some money. They had no idea that they were doing exactly what God had planned for them to do. God triumphed, as Jesus' persecutors appeared to have won. And this, too, is a comfort for us. God will triumph over those who openly oppose him. But he will also triumph over those who are ambivalent to him, like these soldiers, those who just don't care. The head teacher of the Church of England school, for whom the Christian ethos and teaching is very low down the radar. The group of mums who quickly steer the conversation away from Christian things whenever you try to bring up your faith. The friends on social media who just seem so wrapped up in their jobs, their houses, their children, their holidays. It may look for a while like they are succeeding in ignoring the truth and living for themselves. But God will triumph. We do not need to fear. So we've had scene one, God triumphing as Jesus' persecutors appeared to have won. We now move on to our second point, the second way in which we see God's triumph, even in the death of Jesus. Scene two, God triumphed as Jesus served his followers. Verses 25 to 27. Jesus demonstrated his triumph as, when his suffering was at its greatest, he continued to love, serve, and care for his followers. Another difference between John's account of the crucifixion and that of Matthew, Mark, and Luke is that John introduces Jesus' followers earlier and nearer to the events. Uh, Whereas we only see them after Jesus has died and watching from afar in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In John, we get this precious little scene in verses 25 to 27 where Jesus interacted with his followers as he was dying. And a huge part of Jesus' ministry, we know in John's gospel, has been his compassion and his care for individuals. Think of Nicodemus, the woman at the well, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, and of course the disciples. But now, surely, it's time for Jesus to focus upon himself, to steal himself for the torture he's enduring. And although John doesn't zoom in on Jesus' suffering, we can imagine, I'm sure, how great it must have been on the cross as he bore not only the physical, mental, and emotional anguish of such a horrific death, but also the Father's anger for sin. I'm fortunate not to have undergone intense suffering in my life so far, though I've witnessed it in those close to me. And I know there are many among us this morning who fought and are fighting physical illnesses, living with mental illnesses, enduring family breakdowns, dealing with bereavement, and facing other disasters. And yet even these are just a fraction of what Jesus must have been suffering. And so what a precious, wonderful moment this is as Jesus speaks to this little group gathered near the cross. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, verse 26, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. 
knowing he's in his final moments, Jesus entrusts his mother into the care of one of his closest companions. What about Jesus' wider family? The brothers mentioned in Matthew 13 or Mark 6? We don't know. But what we do know is that here, between his gasps of pain, Jesus saw his mother, loved her, and put her into the care of one of his trusted friends. Look after my mum when I'm gone, dear friend. Look after my mum. Jesus triumphed by when his suffering was at its worst, still loving, serving, and caring for his people. Florence Nightingale is famous for her work as a nurse during the Crimean War of 1853-56, to and her work establishing the world's first nursing school at St Thomas's Hospital in London in 1860. But what's less well-known is that while at Scutari in Constantinople, she contracted Crimean fever, an infection called brucellosis. And by the time she was 38 years old, she was homebound and bedridden, and largely remained that way for the rest of her life. Nevertheless, she continued her work from her bed, interviewing politicians, welcoming distinguished visitors, publishing works on how to properly run civilian hospitals, and advising on public sanitation issues around the world. When Florence Nightingale fell ill, surely she could have focused upon herself, her own well-being, her comfort, her indeed survival. But instead, she continued to give her life to loving, serving and caring for others. And doesn't that give us just a little picture of what Jesus' love is like? Jesus triumphed by when his suffering was at its worst, continuing to love, serve and care for his followers. Again, what a joy and a comfort this is to us. If King Jesus on the cross was able to love and care for his flock, how much more will the risen and now reigning King Jesus be able to love and care for us, his people? Perhaps you need to hear that this morning. He has not left you. You are not alone. He knows your pain. He loves you. You may not understand what's going on, You may not see a way out of this trial, but he is with you. His spirit is in you. He will bring you home. Savour these promises. Isaiah 42, verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. Matthew 11, 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, said Jesus. Revelation 21, verse 4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And let me humbly ask you to consider, how could you bless someone who is suffering this week, this afternoon, over coffee? How, even though perhaps you are struggling yourself, could you notice someone else's struggle and love them? It's been a huge challenge to me this week because I've been preparing. So we've seen God's triumph in the crucifixion narrative in two scenes now. Point one, God triumphed as Jesus' persecutors appeared to have won. And point two, God triumphed as Jesus continued to serve his followers. Uh, Now for the third and final way in which we see God's triumph even in the death of Jesus. God triumphed as Jesus chose to die when his work was complete. Verses 28 to 37. Jesus demonstrated his triumph 
by choosing the moment of his death when he knew that he had completed his father's mission for him. So we reach now in our passage the moment of Jesus' death. His final breath. He'd fought to the bitter end and could go on no more. Well, not quite. You see, this isn't the final breath of someone who has struggled with every gasp to last as long as they can. Look down at verse 28. It begins later, knowing that everything had now been finished. And then skip on to what Jesus says in verse 30. Only in John's gospel do we hear these final words. Jesus said, it is finished. This word finished that we get twice there is the Greek word tetelestai. It's a legal term, meaning finished not just in the sense of done or ended, but completed, accomplished. It was the word stamped on an invoice when the payment had been made. Completing a mortgage is perhaps our most similar use of the word today. So Jesus isn't simply saying that it's over, it's ended, but it's complete, it's accomplished. And then verse 30, with that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And the word for gave up is the Greek word, I don't know the pronunciation, but something like paradoka, which means handed over. Jesus handed over his life. It wasn't taken from him. He chose to lay it down when he was ready, just as he said he would. In John 10, verses 17 and 18, he said, The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus triumphed by choosing to die when he had finished his work. A friend of mine was part of the jury which finally convicted last March seven men of preying on vulnerable young girls and abusing them on a huge scale across Oxford between 1998 and 2005. Day after day, my friend and his fellow jurors listened to harrowing accounts of girls as young as 13 being manipulated, lied to, and repeatedly coerced into sexual acts in vans, at guest houses, in local parks, parks just minutes from this building. Tetelestai would, I think, have been a good word to express my friend's feelings as he handed over his visitor's parking permit at Oxford Crown Court on that final day after a five-month trial and 24 days of deliberation knowing that these seven men had finally been found guilty. It is finished. God triumphed as Jesus chose to die when he had finished his work. Meanwhile, back in the Jewish court, the chief priest petitioned Pilate to have the legs of the criminals broken, most likely smashed with an iron hammer, so that they'd be unable to push themselves up to inhale air and would die more quickly. Uh, This was because, verse 31, the priests did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. Probably because of um, Deuteronomy 21, 22 and 23. I'll leave you to look it up later. Um, Pilate consents and the soldiers are dispatched in verse 32. But when they came to Jesus, verse 33, and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Evidently, no one was expecting any of the criminals to already be dead. Crucifixion was designed to drag out for days, not end within hours. In their surprise and confusion, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, verse 34, presumably to check that he really was dead. 
But before we pass by this rather gory eyewitness detail, John jumps into the narrative with a slightly odd verse, verse 35. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. Stop right there and pay attention to this, says John. This is real historical fact. You can trust it. But why does John make such a big thing of this, of of all the details in the account so far? Well, it's because of what comes next in verses 36 and 37. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. One final difference between John's account of the crucifixion and the other gospel writers is the number of times that John refers to Old Testament scriptures being fulfilled. And here we get two in the same moment. The first takes us back to Passover and the second to the prophet Zechariah. We'll look briefly at the second first and then in more detail at the first second. As the soldiers look on Jesus' corpse... John says that they are fulfilling the words of Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. As another scripture says in verse 37, they will look on the one they have pierced. And speaking around 500 years before the birth of Jesus, Zechariah had prophesied that after the defeat of the Gentile nations who had laid siege to Jerusalem at the end time, they would look on God's shepherd, the one they had impaled, and they would mourn. Here, says John, God's shepherd king hangs, pierced by the spear of his enemies, and those who look on him mourn. Now, before we delve fully into the prophecy of verse 36, I wonder, did you notice how keen John has been for his readers to observe that Jesus' trial and crucifixion were occurring during the Passover festival? It's mentioned in chapter 18, verse 28, and again in verse 39. It comes up in chapter 19, verse 14, and again in 31, and again in 42. Passover was the annual celebration of one of the greatest moments in Israel's history, the escape from slavery in Egypt around 1,300 years before the birth of Jesus. After hundreds of years of slavery and oppression, God raised up Moses to demand that Pharaoh release the captive Israelites. Pharaoh refused And a mighty showdown between God and Pharaoh commenced, with God sending nine terrible plagues to demonstrate his power. But still, Pharaoh refused to submit. So God promised a tenth plague that was to be far worse than all that had gone before. That night, God told Moses he would go through Egypt and kill the firstborn of every house. To escape this terrible judgment, the Israelites must take a blemish-free lamb kill it without breaking its bones, and then daub its blood around their door frames. They were then to roast and eat the lamb, fully dressed and ready to leave, along with bitter herbs and bread baked without yeast. And if they followed these instructions, God would pass over their homes when he came to judge that night. And then Exodus 12, verse 29. At midnight... The Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner, who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, 
And there was a loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. And verse 51 of Exodus 12, on that very day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt. The greatest day in Israel's history. A lamb sacrificed so that each family might go free. So that God would pass over their houses when he came down to judge. The greatest day in Israel's history until now. For now, says John, there hung on the cross another one who had been killed at Passover. Another one who was blemish-free, perfect. Another one whose bones had not been broken. Another one whose blood would cause God to pass over those marked by it when he comes to judge. And so God's people could throw their cedar plates in the bin. They need never eat another Passover meal again. Those bitter herbs and flatbreads need not touch their mouths again. The prized lamb could grow old. The temple traders would go bust. The most holy place fall into disuse. For a human lamb had been sacrificed so that each of God's people might go free so that God might pass over them when he comes to judge. The Lamb of God, Jesus, had died to take away the sin of the world. This is what Jesus had finished, his mission to die as a sacrifice for our sin. This is what Jesus had finished as he cried out and gave up his life. Hebrews 10, verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. God triumphed as Jesus chose to die when his work was completed. And what relief we can feel, brothers and sisters, as Jesus hangs on that cross. The relief of the Israelite family huddled in the corner of their house as it reaches 1am on the night of the 10th plague and they realise they've been spared. God has passed over their house. They have not been judged. They are free. So it will be for us on that final day. Instead of our sin, the Father will see our Saviour's blood and his judgment will pass over us and we too will be free. If you're not a Christian, if you haven't yet put your trust in the blood of Jesus, I urge you to consider carefully this morning what you will say when you stand before God as your judge. Let's finish now with the words of the song that we're going to sing a little bit later. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me.
Let's pray. Father, thank you that even in the death of Jesus, we see your triumph. We see your triumph over those who appeared to have won. We see your triumph as you continue to love your people. And we see your triumph as Jesus pays the price for sin. Help us to rejoice as we reflect on this, this Easter. Amen.